Hello and welcome to this week's episode of That One Time I Dated a Mormon. Um, I hope that you are one, surviving the heat and two, surviving the conversation around the heat because of course this is Britain, this is England, so all we can do is complain about it. That's all anyone is going to talk about for probably the next seven, ten days at least. If you look at any newspaper front cover. I mean, it's as if there's nothing else happening in the world at all, apart from the fact that it is hot in the UK at the moment. Um, but yeah, um, that's just kind of, Engl- you know, Englishness and Britishness all over, isn't it? We can play when it's cold, we can play when it's warm, we can play when it rains, we can play when it's windy. You know, we're already being told that trains won't run and the internet won't work. And um, you know, don't go on a train because it'll be too warm and um, there'll be panic on the motorways and cars will explode and, you know, I think the news loves a good story like this because it gives them something to talk about. Um, so, you know, whatever, however you survive, get through it. Um, one tip from me, um, you know, and this is me being British, I was so warm a couple of nights this week um, that I slept on my kitchen floor on the tiles, on the kitchen floor. Um, kind of gives a different idea to the phrase of a night on the tiles. Um, I was literally on the tiles trying to fall asleep. Um, and it did work. Maybe it didn't help my back, but um, I was a little bit cooler than I was up in my bedroom anyway. Um, and also just a thank you to um, those people whose letters I answered last week. Um, and I've had some nice messages from people sending emails in saying that they like that format and they would like me to do, do some more of that in the future. So I will. I'll um, try to make time in the podcast moving forward. Maybe once a month, something like that, I will dedicate a section to, to answering some of your letters and your questions and, and thoughts. Um, this week, I am going to revisit a topic that I've spoken about a number of times on the podcast which is to do with weight and being comfortable in whatever size you are, I am, somebody is, and um, the pressures that can come, I think, particularly at this time of year in summer, when naturally we um, present more of ourselves and put more of ourselves on show because of the heat um, and because of what we wear or you know kind of or don't wear rather because of of, of um feeling comfortable in in the hot weather and it's something that i've spoken about before i wrote about it in my book as well that um this time of year i think like a lot of people i do find a little bit more difficult in terms of having to unlike in winter you know kind of show off your legs wearing shorts and your arms and all the rest of it and it's not something i've ever been particularly comfortable with um and I've just started reading um Jessica Simpson's book. Um I found all the old episodes of Newlyweds on YouTube and it is entertaining to watch it. It's quite sweet and nostalgic to go back and watch it. Um through the lens of um 2020s though, um I think Nick Lachey, the husband of at the time, anyway, the divorce now, um that is sweet and is very patient with, with Jessica Simpson and some of the silly things that she says. But there's one or two episodes where um, I think through the lens of now, it's 
slightly, I would say, verbally and emotionally abusive in terms of the put-downs towards her um, and how kind of openly mocking he is towards her. Um, but in the book that I'm reading, she talks about the issues that she's had with weight and the issues that she's had with alcohol in particular. And she kind of references it back to when I think she was around 14, 15, and she got her first record deal. Um, the record company and executive said to her as soon as she'd signed that she would need to lose 15 pounds of, of weight. Um, and that that really kind of stuck with her in terms of how she then kind of presented herself in the industry. Um, and, you know, watching the, the television show, you know, you can see that she's, you know, obviously very thin and very fit and very healthy, um, as she would need to be to be a performer, but, you know, very, very thin, um, as was that kind of 2000s look, like Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, very thin. Um, and that was what was deemed attractive and acceptable at the time. And she speaks quite openly as well about her weight fluctuation in a couple of photos that surfaced um, of, I think she was at a, like a country festival performing and she'd put on weight, she'd gained weight. I mean, how dare she? She's a woman. And, you know, it's spread through um, magazines like Wildfire, like you can imagine. And she talks or writes rather quite openly about the impact that that had on her at the time. And thinking about the representation of weight on television, it's a lot better than it was. Um, I mean, if you think about a television show like Orange is the New Black that celebrated all different types of people, um, sexualities, genders, race, backgrounds, body types, it was a huge landmark in terms of moving television forward and representation forward. But then this week I've been... Uh, watching Love Victor on Disney Plus, which I think I mentioned last week. And again, looking at it from the lens of um, representation and moving forward, it is. I mean, it's a television show aimed at teenagers that openly deals with sexuality and has a very diverse cast in terms of race and background, but has a painfully thin cast. I mean, painfully thin. Um, and is not diverse in terms of body representation and size at all, unfortunately. And thinking about that from a teenage viewership, I mean, that's still problematic, um, I think. And even when I've just started watching, and just like that, the Sex and City reboot, which I like, actually, I know it got a lot of bad press, but I've quite enjoyed it. I think it's uh, quite, quite nicely matured, if that makes sense. Um, again, that's much more diverse than it was, almost to a point of it being embarrassing, embarrassingly woke, which I know it got a lot of criticism for, um, but it's tried at least compared to kind of how white privilege it was. But again, in terms of body representation, it's still not moved forward enough um, in the women particularly. Um, it's still very thin, very um, kind of well put together and dressed and beauty oriented Um and slim rather than kind of any diverse body shape. Um, in terms of my journey then with weight, so I think I first became aware of being conscious of weight and size when I was at university. Um, I was kind of in the first year of university and fully in the throes of 
um, what I didn't really know at the time was depression um, and was anxiety and I hadn't started treatment for it yet um, and I was desperate and again you don't I, you know I don't think I realised this at the time and anyone that's listening to this may be able to relate don't realise at the time but I was desperate for something to control because everything else at that time when I was 18, 19 felt so out of control when I would have these looping thoughts and horrible invasive thoughts um, and just was so, so deeply unhappy um, and, and I wanted something to control so I couldn't control my feeling and control my mood um, and the thoughts that were racing through my head non-stop, um, you know, night and day and so I turned to food as something that I could try and legitimately have power over and that started from um, kind of only eating certain things or at certain times of day and then restricting certain things and only having certain types of drinks or kind of completely removing certain foods from my diet and then when I started to receive some treatment and started having psychotherapy and went on to medication etc um, I then started to try and exercise as a way to um, kind of, I suppose, normally, for want of a better word, without medication, um, improve my mood um, with endorphins, so going for a run or going swimming or whatever. And then that really then embedded uh, the, the eating disorder that I'd started to develop because rather than see food as something that would benefit my exercise by making me stronger and healthier, I flipped it completely and questioned, well, if I'm exercising, why am I eating? If I'm exercising to try and lose weight and get healthier, then why am I then putting food back into the body that's counteracting the exercise I've just done? Um, and that's completely from lack of education on my behalf, lack of education in school at the time. Um, you know, you're looking at kind of the, the when I was at school, the late 90s, the early 2000s, when there was no discussion around mental health, no discussion around sexuality, no discussion around weight and kind of healthy personal relationships. And, you know, I was in the throes of size zero culture as well. Um, heroin chic of the 90s, when every magazine was... Um, Nicole Ritchie looking skeletal, of Paris Hilton looking skeletal, of The Simple Life with both of those in where they would order um, mountains of food and then not eat any of it when it was all about um, women like Jessica Simpson, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears being as thin but kind of having to be athletic at the same time. Um, and, you know, it was completely perpetuated by the magazine culture of the time, Heat magazine, you know, the the magazines like um, Closer and um, kind of tabloids like The Sun and The Mirror, and they completely played into that. And I think looking back in hindsight, the real danger of that was that it was on one hand celebrating thinness, and that was a way to become famous and that was a way to become popular. But then also at the same time, completely slating these women for it because, oh my God, they're so thin, they're disgusting. 
but at the same time as oh my god they're so thin that's amazing so women could not win I mean and what a shock because you know the media is run by straight white men um so women couldn't win they were too thin but then they were praised for it they were too fat um and then shamed into becoming thin but then were mocked for being thin it was just this horrendous catch-22 and unfortunately um again I don't think at the time I realized it but I completely bought into that completely bought into that um and it's something that has ebbed and flowed over the years um but the eating disorder that I developed and I sought treatment for um I suffered with anorexia I suffered with bulimia as well at the time um is something that um, like I said, has got better at times, has got worse at times, but it's never gone. It's never gone. And I think that anyone who has experienced an eating disorder will know that you're never completely comfortable with food. You're never completely comfortable with your body. You're never completely comfortable with how you look. And at certain times of the year, there are triggers. And it's summer, particularly, there are triggers because you are having to put your body on show more. You're having to show more flesh. And that's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable um, physically, mentally, emotionally, if you're not happy um, with how you look. Now, I looked back at the type of television shows and films that are around at that time as well. And, you know, it was things like The Devil Wears Prada. Um, a lot of the kind of chick flicks of the era, like Bride Wars, um, which again was all very thin uh, appearance-centred comedies that were essentially just gaslighting audiences into um, this film's going to make you think that it's okay to celebrate who you are but really you've got to be really thin um, and there's uh, a, a, a an account on YouTube called Film for, sorry I can't speak, Film for Tals, and it looks at media from the 2000s from a feminist lens and I'm just going to play you a little clip from one of the videos and this looks at diet culture and toxic diet culture and fat phobia particularly in the early 2000s and with how actresses were presented. Celebrities were brutally annihilated and shamed for gaining a little bit of weight or even losing too much weight and all of these criticisms were always paired with really unflattering pictures of the celebrities. The 2000s also saw the height of heroin chic, which is very obviously unhealthy, stick-thin beauty standards for women. And this was a time when models like Kate Moss were saying, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And though Kate Moss has since expressed regret for saying that, it shaped an entire generation of people and how they view food and their body image. And it was also very indicative of the mindset around dieting and body image at that time. Fashion and beauty magazines also used and continue to use the term plus size for people that are either of or below the average weight, which further marginalizes the acceptable weight bracket. In this article for The Guardian, why the 2000s were so toxic for women, Siren Kale looks back on the vicious ways in which tabloids attacked female celebrities. Kale writes, the forces of body shaming and cruelty towards young women converged disastrously. Heat magazine ran a celebrity cellulite special in 2004, bringing offending patches of fat on Martine McCutcheon and Beyonce's legs with white circles. In his memoir, The Celeb Diaries, 
Former Heesh editor Mark Frith talks of searching for images of women looking terrible before printing images of Jennifer Lopez with cellulite on her thighs. For teenage girls, the message was circled in white on the covers of our favorite mags. If your thighs touched, you weren't trying hard enough. And I think, I mean, it raises a number of things there and really reminds you of how problematic that period was, and particularly with magazines like Heat that has a lot to answer for, for what Heat magazine did to the um, the, to the weight shame and fat phobia, mental health of a lot of, a lot of people in the 2000s. It's got a lot to own up for that particular publication. Um, but like that video clip mentioned there, the phrase plus size. So it's like being overweight, you are plus something, you are too much of something, you are excess of something. Um, when really, and I've said it on here before, that fat is just an adjective, it's just a descriptor, it's no different than thin, it's no different than medium size, it's just a description, it's just that thin is always seen as being derogatory, uh, fat, sorry, is always seen as being derogatory, as being a negative, whereas thin has always been seen as being a positive and something that someone should strive towards rather than away from, whereas being fat is the worst possible thing that you could be. Um, I'd like to think we are moving away from that, but we are by no means um, as positive as, as, as we should be. Um, I think that if we look at the body positivity movement, and I've spoken about this before, that came from a good place and it was something that you can have with the onset of Instagram and social media really took um, form over the last couple of years encouraging people to be body positive about themselves but I think the problem with that is it went too far and it was then you know you had um, kind of influencers who had kind of the quote-unquote perfect body saying that they were body positive well yes of course you're going to be body positive because you look like you can be on the front of Vogue um, and so something that became positive was then almost bastardized into again shaming someone who didn't look like that body but that body positive perfection and so a phrase such as body neutrality which i've spoken about before is the healthier thing to think about and to be if you're neutral about your body then you're happy with it you can't be positive about your body all the time you can't be positive about your mental health all the time you can't be positive about your economic status all the time but you can be neutral about it you can have, you know, a mutual understanding that things are okay, they're not perfect, they're not great, but I'm okay with that. And that's really where we should try to be. Um, I also think that, you know, at the moment we're in a little bit of a conflicting period media-wise, because on one hand we're told to be body positive um, and to be happy with however we look alongside Love Island, um, which only has women who are thin, um, men who have six packs, um, people who are tanned, you know, there's no one on there that is um, fat, there's no one on there who is um, openly gay, I mean, I've not seen the last series, but I don't think that's changed, um, you know, it's very ableist, um, and it's completely contradictory to what we are being told we should feel about ourselves and we should be happy with however we look but to then have that plastered on television every night at nine o'clock with this is how people fall in love and I think that you know for me 
you know, as I've said, I'm at a place where, you know, the, the eating disorder that I had when I was in my early 20s isn't as controlling as it was. But then if I step back and look at my relationship with food now, you know, I am still restrictive. Um, you know, I know I don't eat enough. I know I don't drink enough. Um, you know, I eat very healthily. You know, I never, I mean, I can't remember the last time I had something like a takeaway or McDonald's or anything like that. Um, you know, I don't have crisps rarely have sweets, chocolate, cakes, anything like that. Um, and I think that because I eat healthily, I can more easily trick myself into thinking that I'm health, I've got a better relationship with food than maybe I have. Um, and it's only when I maybe sit down and think about it, and I've spoken about it occasionally, to, you know, my parents, because, you know, they're aware of everything that's, that's happened in the past in terms of my weight and things, and um, it's by eating healthily, I can possibly then more easily ignore what's still an issue. Um, I exercise a lot, and on one hand, I enjoy it, you know, it's something that gives me a bit of me time, and I can go for a run and listen to a podcast, I can go cycling and I can listen to some music, um, and I really enjoy that time and I appreciate that time and it means a lot to me, um, but I think as I'm getting older, I am at a point now where the exercise has an impact on my body, and I have aches and I have pains, and, um, you know, like I develop, um, like if some, pe- some problems with my knees and with my ankles and they can swell sometimes and particularly in heat and hot weather that can get particularly bad. Um, after I exercise, I quite often have to kind of sit and put little, you know, bags of ice cubes and frozen peas like on my ankles and my knees and things like that, just to make sure that I then don't get like a swelling or, um, you know, strain or sprain or anything like that. Um, And I find that at the moment I'm in a little bit of a catch-22 in that I know that the amount of exercise I do is obsessive. I know that it is deep down. I know that it's unsustainable because... Um, I am most days in pain somewhere on my body, whether that be thigh, knee, hip, shoulder, ankle, whatever. But my fear is, and it feels quite um, sad, to say this and I shouldn't shame myself that way I know I shouldn't but it's how I feel is that if I stripped exercise back and I have done because I've had to because of the pain I'm sometimes in then if I stripped the exercise back then I would also then become even more restrictive with food and that's my deepest worry 
essentially, because I don't know if I could trust myself to not become more restrictive with the food that I ate and eat. And that's quite a depressing thing to think. It's quite upsetting. It feels a little bit shameful, a bit embarrassing. And even though, you know, I really advocate for people not feeling ashamed of themselves and for being positive about themselves, I think that, you know, it's also healthy to be honest. And that is what I'm feeling. Um, that I know that the amount of exercise that I do is excessive, but I, I can't stop it. Um, and that's, I think, quite I suppose I worry moving forward really because I'm not quite sure where to go or what to do next um, and it's something that I know that I can I think I can only handle if I have help with it um, but I'm not quite sure where to go for that um, because unlike all the advice that I would give to anyone else which would be to talk about it to go and access help I'm reluctant to because I don't I'm scared of what I'll hear and what I'll be told that I've done to my body after all these years, all these years of restricting eating, all these years of excessive exercise, I'm scared of what I'll be told I've done to myself. Now, um, I also wanted to then look at um, the ongoing problems of fat phobia in society and how systemic the judgment and prejudice around weight is and how deeply entrenched it is you know either whether it's coming from media and magazines like I've mentioned or even in um from diet culture and even in medicine and uh, doctors and the NHS um so I've been doing some reading around that and then I'm going to reference um an interview and podcast that I've been listening to as well and a particular um activist around this issue. Um, so there's an article that was released last year in the Eye Independent by Harriet Minter and she talks about how um, her weight was looked at, was constantly deemed a contributing factor to her um, health and her illness and that because of her size she felt that the doctors therefore didn't treat her the same as someone who was thin. Um, so the article is called Fat Phobia in the NHS Meant the Type 1 Diabetes Almost Killed Me. Um, and the, the article, she, she mentions things such as um, when she was poorly, nurses would ask her if she'd eaten too much sugar as a child, um, you know, as if that was something that would then have kind of such a dramatic impact when she was in her 40s. Um, and... 
she says that when she was in, in November of about 2019, 20, I think 2020, she was admitted to the hospital with dangerously high blood sugars. Um, and it turned out that she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is a rare and dangerous form of the disease. Um, but before that, um, all the advice that she'd been given was to lose weight, stop eating, lose weight, stop eating. And because um, weight is seen as being such a answer contributing factor to all health issues that anything beyond that just wasn't considered by the professionals and doctors that she was talking to and working with. Um, and in the article she writes, um, in my head ran the voice, it must be entirely my own fault for failing to be thin and I shouldn't dare to challenge the doctors for this. The impact of diet culture on both of us meant that I nearly died. Linking diabetes and weight is so ingrained in culture that it's almost impossible to separate the two. And when you live in a country which enjoys shaming the overweight as much as Britain does, it's unsurprising that one of the main emotions people diagnosed with diabetes first face is shame. This belief that diabetes is entirely related to your lifestyle and weight that causes problems because we forget many other factors involved. For example, you are between two and six times more likely to contract the common form of diabetes if it's in your family and other risk factors include race, age and blood pressure. When doctors only focus on weight as a contributing factor towards diabetes and discount these other factors, it means people are missed and they are misdiagnosed. Um, and so I think that's quite a powerful comment that um, weight is seen as a contributing factor to so much illness, um, so many issues to war with um, conceiving as well, and that there's a million other things that can be contributing to someone being poorly, not just how they physically look and weigh. And I also looked at um, how fat phobia became more of a, an issue during COVID um, for a number of reasons, whether that was to do with gaslighting, the idea that um, it was more dangerous um, to get COVID if you were fat and even in terms of the problems around vaccinations as well. So um, there's an article that was written by um, a, a writer called Lee Kerr for uh, Bust magazine around a year ago and they were reflecting on how they felt that they were treated during the pandemic when they were fat um, and in the article they write um, the truly terrifying part is medical discrimination in the wake of COVID-19 fat has been pathologized so I can't say the word pathologized pathologized to an even greater extent BMI has been incorrectly identified as a risk factor for both contracting the virus and suffering more severe symptoms Weight has been used as a disqualifying factor when resources are scarce. In other words, fat people have been deemed dispensable. Um, and that really comes from the idea that uh, one of the early symptoms was that um, people who developed COVID struggled for breath um, and couldn't catch their breath. So naturally, if you were then fat, then, well, you you know, that, that impacts your ability to catch your breath and exercise and move anyway. So um, if you get COVID on top of that, well, and it's your own fault because you're fat. And it became this really toxic rhetoric around 
um, the dangers of weight and, you know, we were encouraged to exercise, but then we couldn't leave the house and we were encouraged to go running or cycling, um, but then we couldn't leave the house. Um, but then it was your own fault if you were fat and you got COVID and died. And it was just this really toxic way that the media or, let's face it, the government tried to put the blame somewhere else that wasn't on themselves. You know, first of all, it was people of a certain race. It was their fault that COVID existed. And they'll just look at Trump who blamed all of Asia. Um, and then it was fat people, well, it's your own fault because you should lose weight. And, you know, for a pandemic to be blamed and pushed towards a, a minority of any type, it's just disgusting. And it was. Um, and this is something that uh, the comedian called Sophie Hagen talks about and she's on a recent episode of I Rose Jamila Jamil and she talks about how um you know she felt when she was reading all of this diatribe in the news and how also when she was um having to stay at home and quarantine that it was the first time in a long time that she'd felt safe because she didn't have to leave the house and walk along the street and get comments about her weight she didn't have to um, go to the theatre and have to request certain seats because, you know, theatres aren't designed for people outside of a, of a certain size range. Um, she wasn't having to go on planes and having to ask to book two seats because she, um, you know, doesn't fit into the standard seat size, which, which, planes seem, which planes have. And she released a really, really brilliant clip of her ringing up an airline um, and asking for two seats and um, having to explain why, because she was um, fat, she couldn't fit into a quote, unquote, normal size seat. And she really explains brilliantly how the world is just not designed for people of a certain size. The world is designed for thinness. And why is that? Because something called the BMI, which was designed by white men um, and designed by capitalism, runs the world, unfortunately, and runs the medical profession and runs how we see people of, of, of a size that isn't deemed, again, quote unquote, normal and acceptable. Just to go back briefly to other problems with fat phobia during COVID, um, there's an article by Ali Gareth that was written in The Guardian. Um, and in this, they write about how when they went to get a, an injection, they were told by the nurse that they would have to get a different size needle because the standard 25 millimeter long needle wouldn't pass through the quote fat layer to reach the muscle which is what the nurse told them um, and they would have to go and get a 38 millimeter needle to get through the again quote fat layer um, and just even the idea that you know you're in the middle of a pandemic and everyone's scared and everyone's nervous about getting a, a vaccination that maybe we don't know enough about and then you go to get the vaccination and you're shamed into oh I have to get this whopper of a needle out because you're so fat I mean again it just shows how the world is created for people of a certain look and a certain size 
and you know and I say this coming from a privileged position of not having to worry about having to book a certain seat or having to need a certain size needle if I go to get an injection um but because we don't talk about these things and because weight is such a taboo topic um it means that these little microaggressions constantly happen and we just kind of ignorantly ignore them. Just to go back to the BMI for a moment, which I know I've mentioned just before, um, there are a number of reasons why the BMI is absolute bollocks. So it's something that um, is used to judge your weight and um, to deem whether you are overweight or not or underweight or whatever. And it's a completely bogus thing which people still read and pay attention to, but it's complete bollocks. And it's something that, um, again, doesn't support people of certain race, certain backgrounds, certain um, genetic dispositions, anything. It's just completely ignorant and blind to so many different things that affect people's size and health. So I know I've talked about the BMI before, but I'm just going to reference a couple of things again. So it was introduced in the 19th century. So you're looking at 200 years ago, but it's still something we use now. I'm pretty sure medicine's developed, but whatever, by a Belgian mathematician. So not even a doctor, not even a, not, not even a physician. So we still use it 200 years ago, um, something that was created by a white man who wasn't a doctor. Okay, great. Um it looks at your com comparison between your uh, your height and your weight. Um, so ignores anything else such as um, your kind of physical health in terms of how long you can run for, what your breathing is like, um, your resting heart rate, anything like that. It's purely just comparison of two things, height and weight, that's it. It doesn't um, consider the size of your bone or your skeleton. Um, it doesn't consider that maybe someone who um, has kind of a, a larger body shape could be due to their skeleton size. Um, it just purely looks at someone is either obese or not. And the problem is as well that in America, for example, where um, not everyone has health insurance through work, that insurance companies actually charge high premiums for someone who has a high BMI. Um, so again, you know, you are shamed when filling out a form for health insurance if your BMI is high, because you're then going to have to chart, you're going to have to pay more for your own health insurance. Um, and this is because of something a non-doctor came up with 200 years ago. And, you know, let's not forget that um, anything to do with weight and the diet industry is a capitalist invention. You know, the diet industry um, is a $70 billion industry a year. So no wonder it's something that is so high on the agenda for businesses and companies and celebrities um, because it is a huge money maker. But if you think about it and you really boil it down, you know, in terms of the media and what we're showing and how we're meant to look, in terms of diet culture and how we're meant to look, 
in terms of BMI and medicine and how we're meant to be healthy and look. It all stems from straight white men and their kind of and their capitalist intentions. That's it. Um, I know that this is kind of turned into a little bit of a, of a of a rant, but it's just so frustrating that you know whether it's people like myself who struggle with um, weight and um, put a lot of pressure on exercise and being as slim as possible or people who feel shame for uh, being fat or the incorrect term of overweight, you are too much of something. Whatever part of that spectrum you're on, it all comes back to that core centre of it being decided and made socially acceptable how you should look, being decided by this really small binary group of people to finance themselves and that's what the diet industry is and it's 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 horrible that that's something that has so much power over so many different parts of of society now if um you are yourself struggling particularly at this time of year when there are triggers around summer and appearance and weight then um i would suggest that and i've mentioned these charities before Beat, which is a charity that works with people who are suffering with eating disorders, and Mind, which is primarily a mental health charity, but obviously mental health and weight and eating disorders very much so go hand in hand, then both of those I would definitely contact and look for some resources online, um, if you wish, if that's something that you feel comfortable doing. Now, I always finish by talking about that one thing, or one thing rather I've done that week, um, I'm not going to mention it just yet, but there is something potentially quite exciting um, and quite mind-blowing, actually, that's going to happen in um, about a fortnight's time. Um, I had a brief phone call about it yesterday, and if it all goes together, I'll be able to talk to you about it in about two weeks. Um, so it is exciting, um, but I just don't want to mention it at the minute because I don't want to jinx it. But hopefully I'll be able to reveal all in a fortnight or, or so. Um, so thank you very much for listening. I hope nothing that has been said um, has been um, triggering, even though I know we all deal differently with weight and appearance. If you do have any questions or thoughts, by all means, contact me at one time, podcast at yahoo.com or on Instagram if you wish. Um, I do hope you survive the, the heat and the um, ludicrous amount of uh, coverage it's getting at the moment, but you know, that's Britain for you. Um, and I hope you have a good week and I will speak to you very soon.